So if you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5 at this point. Nehemiah chapter 3, but we're going to cover all of chapter 3 and chapter 4. I hope the last time when we covered chapters 1 and 2, you can see it can be done in about 40 minutes or 35 minutes. So we're going to do something similar tonight. Nehemiah 3. If you weren't here last time we met, uh, the sermons are online. Go to heritagepca.org. Go to the media button, the media link. You get there and you'll see this list of of, uh, audio files at sermonaudio.com and you can find it. I highly encourage you, if you weren't here, to go listen to that so it will catch you up to speed. I feel like it was very important, and this is going to be important today, too. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing as we read Nehemiah 3, 1 through 5. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to him Zachar the son of Emri built, the sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate, they laid its beams, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired, and next to them Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired, and next to them Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, may our time in Nehemiah build our resolve, lift our hearts, and fortify our hope. Amen. May be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. You see the four points there. I've been reading a book called Battle Cry for Freedom by James McPherson. It's supposed to be the best single volume of the Civil War. It was an Oxford Press publication. It's won a Pulitzer Prize. It's been a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. But most of it, of course, revolves around Abraham Lincoln. And so the more I read about Abraham Lincoln, the more I go, I would never, ever, 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 ever want to have been in his shoes, ever. <laughs> Poor guy. Voted into the executive office by a slim majority in the middle of a hot and hostile time, and then he watched the nation come apart at the seams under his administration, and it finally ripped wide open. He was often disrespected and despised by his own people, the Union, as well as the Confederates. He rarely seemed to be able to do the right thing in the majority's eyes at any given moment. And yet, he stuck to his guns through to the end. He said several times, I'm going to hold this office and do this whether if it, until it either kills me or we are... We suffer utter defeat or we finally have full victory. He was stuck to what he was doing to the very end. And he got to see the nation begin to reunite and rebuild before he was murdered. That kind of tenacity is the kind of tenacity that's in Nehemiah and that drives Nehemiah and his push to rebuild after a hot mess by seeking the welfare of God's people. 
So you can see the four points there on the back of the worship guide. The first point, overhaul, is all of chapter 3. Very quickly, we're just going to breeze, not breeze, breeze through it, but kind of move through it quickly because you have a taste of what it's like. We just read the first five verses and you're already starting to get sleepy. You know what I mean? Right? It's just rebuild, rebuild, build, 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 repair, 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 repair. And it's all these names. But though this chapter, though chapter 3, can sometimes come across so detail-oriented and minutiae numbing, it is a very important chapter. It begins there in verse 1 at the sheep gate, and when you come to the last verse, it comes right back to the sheep gate, giving you the clear indication that they rebuilt, were rebuilding the wall all around the city. It is a labor-intensive chapter, as you can be as can be seen by the fact that the word repaired repaired is used 38 times and built rebuilt together is are used 8 times and all the way through when they come to a gate you have a similar pattern you have the gates of the city being covered or consecrated um, the doors set the bars set and the beams set you go through and count every person who's working or every group that's working. You have over 40 groups of people from the highest to the lowest, from, from, uh, from one side to the other. You have priests to Levites to Benjamites to Judahites to higher ups to lower downs. And they're mentioned, all of them, throwing their backs into the work, laboring side by side. Truly, they have responded to Nehemiah's directions the way they said they would back in chapter 2, verse 18, when they said in chapter 2, verse 18, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And chapter 3 is fleshing out that statement. That's exactly what they did. But further, not only in chapter 3 are they laboring around Nehemiah, under his leadership, they are also working together in unity. They are working together in solidarity around Nehemiah. It's intriguing. They're from all the different walks of life amongst the Jews, and yet none of them are saying, you know, I'm too good except for one group. We'll talk about them in a minute. But most everybody else is not saying, I'm too good to do this job. Let the poor folks do it or the laborers do it. The priest threw his back into it for crying out loud, right? Everybody is putting their shoulder into the work. There's this huge solidarity around Nehemiah. It's the kind of solidarity that is echoed in our New Testament reading around the greater Nehemiah, around the gospel of Jesus. When Peter was reading in Philippians chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's, just a, it's almost like it's a, a lived out picture of what Paul is referring to in Philippians 1. They're striving with one mind and one spirit, side by side for one cause, underneath the leadership of Nehemiah. And it's a great picture of what the New Testament is calling for for his people, for, for God's people in the church. Ah, but it's not everyone in Judah. Because when you look at chapter 3, verse 5, 
you see that some of the nobles of Tekoa, they won't stoop to serve their master or their lord. They're just a small smidgen of a group. And it's not everybody who's involved, as we'll see when we get to chapter 4 in a few minutes. But it's almost everyone on site. It's 97%, 98%, 99% are all in it. And it's not going to be perfect, this overhaul. It's not going to be perfect, as will become clear in the unfolding chapters. But it's the beginning of the better welfare of God's people as they rebuild after their hot messes. But it is a kind, but it is, it, it, but as is kind of normal, during the overhaul time, there can often be obstruction. And that's what you run into immediately in chapter 4, this obstruction. It's specifically verses 1 through 9. I hope you have your Bibles open so you can follow along. But notice how it begins in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone walls. Notice the opposition, the obstruction has already begun. It's a verbal obstruction at this point. And so the obstruction comes from our star obstructionists. We ran across them in chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10 and also down in chapter 2, verse 19. These are our star obstructionists and naysayers, Sanballat and Tobiah. And we will run across them again and again. Angry, enraged, jeering, and taunting. I think we need to remember, notice that most of what they're doing at this point is wor- are words. I think one of the things we need to keep remembering is that weaponized words, weaponized words can be almost as destructive and potent as wielded weapons. David says so in chapter in Psalm chapter 4. As he writes there, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have, been, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall you turn my... Shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, etc.? We read it also in our psalm, in Psalm 94. Um, How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evil boasts, the evildoers boast. Notice how their weaponized words are almost as potent and destructive as wielding weapons. Or notice again how rotten speech is mentioned in the company of murderous and mendacious actions when you get to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. Most of you know this passage. You may not have it memorized, but you are familiar with it. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And normally discord is sown with words. So three times 
language comes up, words come up in the company of murderous and mendacious actions in Proverbs 6. Sometimes weaponized words can be just as destructive and potent as wielding weapons. And that's what you see going on here with Tobiah and Sanballat. It was a derisive, reviling obstruction that these two were doing. And notice that Nehemiah's response to this obstruction in verses 4 through 6 is not retaliation. He does not hit back with his own public smear campaign. Notice that. He does not respond in kind with his own public smear campaign. Instead, he counters their insults and their jeers with what? Verse 4 through 6. Prayer. With prayer. And specifically, a form of prayer that is called imprecatory prayer, where he makes his case before the great judge of the universe, and then he leaves the decision and the actions in the hands of the great court of heaven. Listen to his words. Hear, O God. So he wants, them, he wants the Lord to hear Tobiah and Sambalat. Hear, o, o our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger. They have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That imprecatory praying comes up and sometimes Christians go, well, I can't do that. I mean, that's not Christian. But you see it happening in the New Testament. If nothing else, just think about heaven. Revelation 6, the souls of the martyrs that are under the altar. What kind of a prayer are they praying? How long until you bring judgment upon those people? Right? So imprecatory praying in that regard is legitimate What you are doing is you are making your case before the high king and the judge of heaven and you're leaving the decision on how he will do it and when he will do it and the way he will do it in his hands and then you move on. Imprecatory praying is a good thing to do, is a right thing to do in a bad situation. Just recently, someone that I know, not a member of this church, a friend of mine, a family friend of ours, Their daughter was victimized by a predator. And they were just devastated. We don't have words to say. We don't even know what to do. And I took them to Psalm 9 and 10. And I said, when we're done talking, you you and your husband, you, you need to go and pray Psalm 9 and 10. And I led them in an imprecatory prayer. There's nothing they can do necessarily until the till the cops finally do their investigation and all that stuff, but it's, it's horrendous and it's hurting their family. What do you do? Well, run to God and say, this is what this guy did to my daughter. Take it back on him. If he will not be converted, then may he be brought down so he doesn't harm anyone else. Right? That's imprecatory praying. So my friends, in that confidence, the people of God then keep their heads in the game and they push forward and so in the next verse, verse, um, verse 6, so they built the wall. So we built the wall. All the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The wall was built to half its height. I don't know how tall it ended up being, maybe 10, 12 feet. Those walls were never much higher than that for reasons of physics and gravity and all that. 
So half the wall, might be my height, a little bit higher, was built half that height. They kept up to their work. But still, obstruction happens. And as often unfolds, weaponized words, weaponized words can turn into threatening actions. Words do fuel actions. Weaponized words turn into threatening actions. And here you will notice the obstructionist party begins, becomes bigger. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah. Now it becomes more of a crowd that gets bigger and bigger and it starts swelling and it begins to move toward mob mentality. Where in verse 7 and 8, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. It's interesting, that language. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. That pattern is the devil's old pattern, divide and conquer. Cause confusion, divide them. Plotting, aggression, spreading confusion. But what does Nehemiah and the squad do? Look at verse 9. I love this line. I've been saying this to Wes for I don't know how long now. We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection. We prayed to God and we set a guard as our protection. Notice what they do. They entrust themselves to the only one who can ultimately do something about their situation. And then they also set a guard. Why is that? Because they trust in God's sovereignty and they know, go back and listen to the last sermon in chapter 1 and 2, they know, they trust in God's sovereignty, but they know that God often uses second causes to be part of the answer to our prayers. I should get a big amen from Moose because he's all about prevention. Yes, amen. Okay, I see an amen. amen. Yes, there you go. All right. And so they, they prayed to God and set a guard. You're going to hear me say that quite a bit over the next few years. I could just feel it already. They prayed to God and set a guard. There we go. And so this is a significant lesson that we need to learn. Yes, we pray, but also what else do we do? What's the thing that we need to do as well, right? And so, but there's more obstruction that arises through obfusc- obfuscation. You say that three times fast. Obfuscation. And it's verses 10 through 14. And I want you to notice just the very beginning, verse 10, 11, and 12. Notice who's there. There's people of Judah who say this. There are enemies who say this. And then verse 12, and there are, there, uh, and at, at the time, the Jews who lived near them came and said these things 10 times. So there are three different crowds here. What I find interesting is that all kinds of armchair coaches and quarterbacks are out there. That's what's happening here. These are armchair quarterbacks and coaches. It's like watching football with somebody that I know, but I won't tell you her name, you know, and she wonders why that quarterback didn't do better this way. Well, honey, you can't do that if you don't have a line to defend you, you know, an offensive line to defend you. Well, he should have done better, right? Sorry, I'm going to pay for that one. But there's all kinds of quarterbacks, armchair quarterbacks and coaches out there. So notice in verse 10, people in Judah, why, we just can't do it all. We, in fact, we've never done it that way before. And then there's the outright enemies of verse 11. You're losers. We're going to whip you. And then there's the other Jews who 10 times, and that may not be literal, that may be hyperbole, but still notice a number of times these other Jews from the surrounding area are saying, come back to the way we've always been and the way we've always coexisted. All these armchair coaches and quarterbacks. 
Not only are there the main obstructionists, Tobiah and Sanballat and so forth, who are putting violent pressure upon Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem building, not only are there these main obstructionists, but there are also, notice, loads of friends and families, family and neighbors who are pouring it on and complicating the whole affair. This made me think of something this last week. I think of a PCA pastor in his congregation who we just prayed for in Vancouver, British Columbia. During the Canadian shutdowns of the pandemic early on, he led his church to keep doing, uh, to keep to the letter of the Canadian law of not meeting in their church building while he and his elders concocted ingenious and creative ways to do an end run around the law, even preaching at multiple services in the winter outside to his congregation. He was saying something about how his legs were being, had been burned by the heater that was behind him as they were outside. Creative and ingenious ways to do an end run. He told me, he said, I froze my tail off after hours in the cold. And so they were one of the few churches that continued to meet every week lawfully. And God blessed that church by keeping it, not only keeping it together, but also growing it, apparently. And now the Canadian government has passed a new law about something totally different that I've just mentioned to you. They passed a new law that will make some actions by Christians illegal, specifically Christians helping folks leave behind their LGBTQ plus lifestyle that they want to leave behind. They can't do that according to this law. What's sad to me is how many fellow believers I have seen who have attacked this pastor and his congregation and have said things like, Well, you know, because you obeyed the Canadian law about not meeting in church, usually people that said that did not know the whole story. They just pompously made their accusation. Because you obeyed the Canadian law about not meeting in church, you brought this on your own head. It's your fault. My friends, it's disheartening. To see the way the family, fellow Christians, eat their own young. And that's what you see happening to Nehemiah right here. Family and friends are outside and they're eating their own young or trying to. There are loads of obfuscation. There's loads of obfuscation going on now in our present moment. And there was loads of obfuscation going on here at Jerusalem. But Nehemiah has a purpose. He doesn't let the obfuscation stop him. He has a purpose. And the purpose is the welfare of God's people by rebuilding after a hot mess. And no amount of obfuscating is going to stop him. And so he rallies the people. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And so the persistence of Nehemiah and of God's people around Nehemiah pays off. They make great headway toward their objective, and that's verses 15-23, their objective. Well, the obstructionists and the enemies begin to back up 
Because God answers Nehemiah's prayer. Notice how it says in verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his word. I find that interesting. We prayed to God and set a guard, and that's how God answered their prayer. It frustrated the obstructionist's plans. So the Lord is answering that prayer. He's He's frustrated their plan, the obstructionist's plan. So Nehemiah then makes all kinds of other plans to make sure his people are armed and ready, but able still to work. That's verses 16 through 18. You have half of them carrying their armor with them, the other half are working and they trade off, and then later on they'll actually start carrying swords while they work on the wall, and then they have their sword with them. All time, Nehemiah is making all kinds of plans to make sure his people are armed and ready and, and able still to work. It's funny, as I was reading that last part there of chapter 4, it conjured up in my mind that moment in The Lilies of the Field. Anybody ever watched that black and white movie, The Lilies of the Field? I mean, Sidney Poitier passed away recently. I just had to mention it anyways. But in The Lilies of the Field, there was Sidney Poitier's character, Homer Smith, right? He's been building that church and the Mother Superior has been hounding him and harassing him. He finally gets things going and there's that precious moment when people come out of the woodwork. I mean, out of the woods, just come in cars and trucks and they start bringing all their bricks. They bring in all the cement. They bring in all the resources needed and they all jump in and they all begin to build. It was something similar to that. That's what comes to my mind when I'm reading chapter 4. Is that... That movie. But for all of Nehemiah's plans, notice that his confidence, his confidence is not in superior military tactics, but his confidence is in the superior majesty. Verse 19 and 20, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall for uh, far from one another, in the place where you hear the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Notice his confidence is not in superior military tactics and power and, and all of that. His confidence is in the sovereign majesty himself. Our God will fight for us. Interesting enough. Um, interesting enough, he's actually quoting there what Moses said at the Red Sea, which we read as the call to worship this evening. There's Israel, surrounded by their enemies. The Egyptians are coming in massive force. They outnumber them. They outgun them. They outmaneuver them. They have the greatest, newest uh, military technology. They're running up behind them. And Moses says to them, what does he say to God's people? He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And so Nehemiah quotes that, God, our God, will fight for us. His trust is not in his abilities and his tactics. It's in the one who is over all things. And so to continue toward their objective, Nehemiah calls for all of them to stay inside the rising wall of the city. It's for their protection and also for the, the, to keep the momentum going. He, he, he calls on them to stay inside the rising wall of the city and he leads, notice he leads from the front. Notice the last couple of verses. He leads from the front. This is huge to me. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men 
of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah is leading from the front. He's staying in the city. He's not going to take on any kind of pleasures at this moment, just for this period of time. He's going to do what he's asking the people to do. He's leading from the front. It's very similar to something that Wes and I have memorized from Titus 2. When Paul tells Titus, he says, in all respects, show yourself to be an example of good works. Lead from the front. I can tell you as a military man, the commanders that were the most impressive were the ones that were right there with you and they led from the front. The cowardly bundle that sat back in the back and ordered you to go but never faced anything, they were the ones that very few people respected. Okay? I mean, leading from the front is huge and the fact that Nehemiah is doing that is pronounced. There you go. So, Though more trouble is about to come to God's people and to Nehemiah, and it will come from inside the church, that's chapter 5, that'll be the next time we meet. Yet for now, let's take stock of some of what we've gained. First off, the need to rally around the greater Nehemiah, all unified. If you get nothing else, I want you to get these next two points the most. The need to rally around the greater Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord who comforts in the flesh. The need to rally around the greater Nehemiah unified. Instead of looking at one another and having cat fights and and bickering and, and saying, I'm too good for that kind of work, it's this rallying around the greater Nehemiah, our Lord Jesus, unified. Which leads to the second one. The importance of rallying around the greater Nehemiah to keep ourselves from being swallowed up by the obfuscation and the obstructionists. Because the people were rallied around Nehemiah, they, no, they, did, they did not get swallowed up in all that Sanballat and Tobiah were saying and threatening them to do. They, it was there, but they didn't get swallowed up in it. That's where we will find our refuge as we rally together around the greater Nehemiah. It will keep us from being swallowed up by obfuscation and obstructionists. Then, my friends, the worth, the worth, value of presenting our case to the sovereign judge against the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people, presenting our case and leaving the judgment in his hands. Prayers of imprecation. I hope that when you walk away, you see the value of it and the rightness of it and that you're not afraid to do it. I'm not talking about your own personal uh, vendettas. I'm talking about people who hate Jesus and hate Jesus' church. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's right to do it. And I hope you see the value of that. Further, I want you to notice the value and take away the value of praying and setting a guard. Praying and setting, we prayed and we set the guard. It's right for us to think about what to do as we pray. Okay? But lastly, and most of all, I hope you can see this. If you can't, I hope, I'm going to try to help you. Watching the way that Nehemiah deals with his detractors who are slandering him, who are reviling him, who are jeering at him, who are getting in his way, who are harming him in a sense. I hope that you will look through this Nehemiah to the greater Nehemiah. Look through this Nehemiah and his actions to the greater Nehemiah who, thinking of 1 Peter chapter 2, who committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So, dear friends, rebuilding after a hot mess, seeking the welfare of God's people. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord, for Nehemiah. We thank you for this book being here and the reminders of, of this way to, to rebuild after there's been so much that has been uh, pulled down and to see the value of rallying around our greater Nehemiah. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can cry out to you. We thank you that you hear us. We thank you that we can even lay our case out before you about evil going on in our world, in our land, and so forth. And that we can leave that in your hands. And you will, you will answer that prayer someday. We pray that you would help us to never be swallowed up by the obstructionists and the opponents and the enemies of your people. Never be swallowed up by their traps, by their jeering, by their causing confusion. That we would always rally around you, our only hope. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.